The e-resource of this episode is the KC Star Image Edition. Flip through full-page images of the KC Star Image Edition. This online service looks just like the printed paper tossed onto driveways every morning. See today's issue, browse past issues from recent years, search within a page or issue, clip part of a page to download or print, and save articles to your personal folder. You'll find the KC Star Image Edition in the e-newspaper section of our e-library, jocolibrary.org e-library. I know that uh, you tell hundreds and hundreds of people uh, about Kansas City history on the tours that you do, so I think that's that's pretty that's pretty neat stuff, and uh, well, I, we I enjoy that. yeah, and, and I enjoy learning about Kansas City history, and and sometimes it's not pretty, but I think everybody right. needs to uh, realize. So that why are we not talking about things that were mistakes in the past, so that we can learn from them? Agreed. You know, so, you know, how else do we advance if we don't recognize what was done? Joko Library Uncovered. Hey, Charles. Hey, Dave. It's a good way to start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Classic. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about true crime mm-hmm. and the history of true crime and especially Kansas City. And there's a lot. I mean, it's very overwhelming and it's been very educational. One of the things that I've concluded is I'm not going to be able to learn it all and I'm not going to be able to like condense it down into a a nice, tidy little presentable story for the podcast. Sure. So, yeah, thanks for tuning in. We'll (laughs) see you next time. We'll, We'll try to pick easier topics in the future. Yeah, I think that that is a good place to start this episode. So our topic today being Kansas City true crime yeah. and the fact that it is so complicated and it goes back all the way to the territorial history of Kansas. You could right. trace Kansas City true crime to to any point along the timeline and yeah. there are interesting stories to tell all along the way. For sure. And I I feel like so much of Kansas City true crime gets condensed into the story like, oh, the mafia came to Kansas City and then Mm -hmm. there were, you know, years of terror and war. But I I came to realize that because of pre-Civil War disputes and the Civil War itself setting up this climate of of murder, Mm -hmm. essentially – you know, when does that end? Just because war comes to an end, just because slavery comes to an end, mm-hmm. does that change people's behavior? Right. And and I think what I've yeah. what I've discovered, and I I be curious to find out what you've discovered in your research. But uh, the answer is, oh no, <laughs> no, 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 and and, and everything. Anytime you dive into history, it, it seems like it's always connected you find all those interesting spider webs that weave things together people together i think that in this case with kansas city true crime that was especially evident the more we dug in and and found these things so yeah rather than have like a four hour long episode where we probably couldn't even cover everything in that anyway right we, we're gonna have to make some decisions on what to cover and what we're gonna yeah. what we're gonna leave out today yeah, absolutely 
Okay, so what this episode is not about, um, and and honestly, these are fun topics, and maybe we we would want to come back to these um, in the future. Serial killers like Bob Berdella, yeah, uh, famous court cases. Not really focusing on those either. Mm-hmm. The Klan. While racism was prevalent in KC, some would argue it still is in some places, uh, the Klan didn't make much headway into Kansas City because of organized crime. And the Kansas City Mafia was heavily Catholic and they kind of butted heads. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But not part of this episode. Not part of this one. We'll we'll mention Pendergast, but his political machine and his mob ties, that could be an entire episode. Right. We will definitely get into some of that. We're also going to be leaving out mass murderers like Timothy McVeigh. It's an interesting story. The FBI agents from Kansas City who cracked that case and and others others like it. But it's just too broad of a topic for Kansas City true crime. And we're also not going to be focusing on detective work. So whodunits, uh, for example, the unsolved murder of Janina Vasquez, last Mm -hmm. seen February 12th, 2015, leaving the Isle of Capri Casino in Kansas City. We're we're just not going to be focusing on some of those, those cases. So what are we going to be focusing on? Well, you'll find out in just a few moments after the news. Library News. So we begin June 17th, 1933. Then, of course, we'll backtrack and we'll fill in some of the other history. But we want to talk about the Kansas City Massacre. So this was a shootout and a murder of four law enforcement officers and a criminal fugitive in front of Union Station. And so this involved... Uh, a gang, Vernon, uh, led by Vernon C. Miller, to free Frank Jelly Nash, who had escaped from Leavenworth Prison. And so they were trying to take him back. And this gang just lets the bullets fly, right? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is on the FBI cases site, and we have that in our show citation, they say that Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, um, a Chicago mobster, was identified by the FBI as one of the gunmen. However, other sites say that there's evidence to suggest that Floyd was not involved at all, that Mm -hmm. he was sitting in Chicago. I bring this up because, yes, it's a fascinating moment in history, and, I mean, you don't see violence like that every day. Mm -hmm. But the fact that the accounts aren't, you know, 100 – they're not totally certain. The FBI is certain. I kind of trust them. Yeah. But I I, I feel like that's kind of a little sample of what we've run into in our our research, right? Right. Yeah. So you get different accounts based off of the the motivations and the perspectives of different people involved in these events. And we weren't there to witness them. And even if we were, I think everybody knows your memories are not really – fixed and going to be the same as everybody else's. The people see different things based off of what their attention is focused on. That all to say, history is complicated and we are not experts. And the accounts can vary wildly. Yes. Um, and uh, we 
uh, try very, very much so to uh, remain neutral and, and try to determine the best sources that, that are available. But we also acknowledge that history is often storytelling. And so mm-hmm. um, one of the people that we brought in that you'll hear uh, his voice throughout this episode is a historian. You can just call me Eric Stafford. Who does historical tours down in the River Market area and along the trolley line. The library does not endorse any particular business. And we just mentioned that that's what Eric does as a storyteller and as a historian. So just to let you know um, who he is. Right. So we will be dropping clips of him throughout the episode. You will, you'll hear those. But I think a good place for us to do is let's just dive into our timeline here and we can go back to the 1850s. What was yeah. happening in the 1850s, Dave? Right. So the nation was expanding west and the question that nearly ripped our country apart was would slavery expand west? Right. So in 1854, of course, we had the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And that left the question in the hands of the settlers. And, of course, the border exploded into violence. And we'd like to mention in our show notes, you can find links to two different videos. One's about the border war. One's about the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And you get to really fully understand all that was happening nationwide, how how Kansas was really the focus of the nation Mm -hmm. for a while, and really was where the Civil War began. Well... We're here in the uh, River Market area, uh, actually on 3rd and Main. At this particular point, uh, Pearl Wilcox documents that uh, Thomas McDaniel, he was a slave trader, and he drove, uh, he and four other people, three other people was four of them, uh, they had about 100 blacks and they drove them down this street right here, then they were put aboard a steamship. Okay. And shipped to the Mississippi River they had been sold. This was in 1859. 1859, It was okay. the last major slave purchase or trade uh, in Jackson County. So, so Kansas, like you said, with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, opened for settlement in 1854. It became a state January 29th, 1861. And now Charles is going to sing the state song. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um uh, but, but then the civil just, war, the civil war kicked off happened, right yeah. after that state started to secede. The same year that Kansas becomes a state. Yeah. April twelfth, eighteen sixty one, is cited as the start of the civil war. Right. Uh, so that period lasted until eighteen sixty five. You know, you you have a war going on, mm-hmm. right? But there's also general lawlessness. So one example of that, slavery. Um, was still ongoing in Missouri right. through the Civil War. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, a lot of people think, may have ended slavery, which was 1862, just a year into to the conflict. That's a good distinction to make, right? That right. It, that was not. Yeah. Everybody says, oh, Lincoln freed the, the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. Not necessarily true. No. So if you look at what that proclamation did, uh, it said that as of January 1st of 63, any states in rebellion against the Union, slavery would be against the law in those states. So that meant that the states that didn't secede, like Missouri, 
that they still had slavery. So in 1863, there was the Sam Gaddy uh, steamboat murder. And so we have a link in our show notes uh, to this New York Times article that was from, uh, boy, March 29th, 1863. Mm-hmm. So Sam Gaddy was, was the first uh, steamboat manufacturer west of the Mississippi River. Okay. And so there was a steamboat named after him. And it was parked in uh, Sibley, Missouri, and it was said that they thought there was about 300 slaves, uh-huh. fugitives, on this steamship. And so George Tide, there's a street named after him, at least of it. Um, he and some of his friends went aboard looking for these fugitives. And when they got on the ship, it was like 90 of them. And so they scattered and ran away into the woods. Yeah. Okay. But they caught like nine of them and murdered them. And so this area was, I mean, you can say the Civil War started and ended here in this area. And then what happens in 1863? The city starts to boom. It's true. Yeah, the the railroads start to progress across the country. Uh, From the 1860s into the 1880s, the railroads were a big expansion towards the west and then the building of bridges uh, Mm -hmm. was a big one there were bridge contracts and the winners of those big bridge contracts you knew that that's where the railroad was going to go because the railroad they're not going to go under the water they're going to want to go over it (laughs) (laughs) and that brought a lot of workers to the area and uh, then uh, something else happened Uh, 1865 the 13th amendment and so the abolition of slavery. Right. So you have an influx of a lot of former slaves into the area as well. Mm-hmm. When the Civil War ended, we were in competition with Leavenworth, Kansas, and St. Joseph, Missouri for rights to the Hannibal Bridge, would be the, which would be the first bridge to cross the Missouri River. And due to the efforts of Robert T. Van Horn, uh, we won out. And so after which we grew to be the second largest livestock exchange in literally the world, second only to Chicago, because Chicago was number one in the world. Wow. So we were, they were the only other livestock exchange larger than ours. So with that, uh, you have an influx of immigrants coming to the area because there was work here, and not just in the packing houses, also grade and feed factories, and along the railroads too. Yeah, yeah, so you have his, sense. So you have Hispanics, they came, they worked along the railroads. Uh, blacks were already here, they helped build the Hannibal Bridge, and they settled in the section of town in the West Bottoms on the east side, known as Hell's Half Acre. And there they lived amongst other ethnic groups, okay. And so then the uh, Pendergast, he was a gambler. He grew up right next door to where Jesse James had been killed. So after the Civil War, uh, Jesse James, the Youngers, they started robbing banks. They went from robbing banks to actually robbing trains, which at that time, you know how, I mean, they really were messing up the Federal Reserve. Not really necessarily the Federal Reserve because it wasn't established then, but it was messing up the banking industry because they didn't have like a wire transfer or whatever. So the money actually was a lot more valuable. Yeah, and so it had to be transported. And so they were robbing those banks, those trains, before it got to the bank. So they put a bounty out that was like $30,000, and it was was recovered for by Robert Ford in St. Joseph, Missouri. And so... Uh, Pendergast, Jim Pendergast, he's the older brother. Uh, he grew up 
uh, right next door, the Pendergrass family did. And so, but Jim, the older brother, was a betting man. He placed a bet on a horse that was a long shot to win. And if he won enough money, he opened up a tavern in the West Bottoms, which was considered Kansas City's first downtown, because that's where the packing houses were, grain and feed factories and all that. So okay. that was our industrial area. Yeah. And that's where the first Union Station was located, in the West Bottoms. It was built in 1874. Okay. And so, uh, with the Kansas City at this time was developing a reputation as a very wide open, permissive town. And so there were gambling dens. He wasn't. There were gambling dens everywhere. And then there were also taverns everywhere, and then there were also brothels. Yeah, and, right. And, and so uh, people started to hear about Kansas City. A lady by the name of uh, Ann Chambers, she heard about Kansas City's reputation, and she moved here from Indiana, and she moved down here in the River Market, and her girls were making uh, $200 a week in 1874. Wow. And then you also had taverns, gambling dens everywhere, all in, in the West Bottoms. Okay, so the Civil War ends in 1865 uh the abolition of slavery happens in 1865 at that time uh things are very unsettled in the area and the founder of johnson county kansas the reverend thomas johnson is murdered Joko History has a blog, and uh, we would like to send you over to that. They have a wonderful article on this murder. We're going to sample a little bit of it. So um, this was taken from the death announcement and an eyewitness account from uh, Johnson's daughter, Edna. So they don't know who these men were Mm -hmm. that show up at their house. However... Quantrill and his men were still roaming the borders and still getting into skirmishes. Um, you know, Jayhawkers uh, from the Lawrence side were still going over into the Missouri side. So there's still conflicts, right? Mm-hmm. The thing that's interesting about Johnson is that, as Eric explains, it's, it was a split household. Right. He had one son uh, serve the North and one serve the South. And uh, he himself was a slave owner. And he was uh, one of the members, first members of the bogus legislature. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, point being, he had a lot of folks that might have wanted to kill right. him. <laughs> right. So, so, anyways, on this, this night. January 2nd of 1865. They had put their fires out for the night. They're ready to just go to bed. And all of a sudden, basically, a bunch of men show up, and they ask if they can come in. Uh, but actually, they start out by asking for directions to uh, Westport. They were given directions. They ask if they could, uh, you know, come inside and get warm. And the Johnson said, "No, we're we're going to bed." They ask, "Can we have some water?" And they say, "Yes, there's a well outside. You can you can use it." Some of the men start going to the well, and the other men start going to the house. And then Johnson shuts the door. The bullets start flying through the door, and Johnson is killed. The really interesting part of this is those men start riding around the house. They set fire to the back of the house. So Johnson's young daughter got water from the well, snuck outside, and was putting out the fire while the mother, and I think it was her son, we're trying to hold off these men, and the standoff lasted for like an hour. 
Yeah. Yeah. Until finally she said, hey, the Reverend Johnson is is dead, and they departed. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, that's uh, Kansas City true crime. And spoiler alert, there's more of that for like 100 years. <laughs> right. Yeah. So just another example of that early early Kansas City lawlessness that we were talking about. Right. And so then in 1971, that's really when Kansas City becomes a boom town because we already had the railroad come. We already had the bridges. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of people coming from different areas looking for work and enter the the stockyards. Right. In in 1871. Did I say 1971? Yes. (laughs) Well, that's quite a job. So we enter the 1900s. Kansas City's a boom town, right? Attracting mm-hmm. a lot of workers. Well, not only did they attract workers, but they uh, attracted opportunists. So sometimes these were very wealthy people that were looking to buy land. And uh, uh, two of those individuals were very prominent Kansas City names that we know of even today. And so this is a fascinating story of murder. Right. So uh, along with all of those industrialists that you get around that time, uh, two Kansas City locals were Colonel Thomas Hunton Swope. Of Swope Park fame. Yep, Swope Park. And Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde. Of Hyde Park fame. Right. So... Uh, this case involved Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, potentially, depends on who you listen to in history, uh, but but maybe uh, <laughs> murdering Colonel Thomas Hunton Swope. Right. And so um, at this point, we'd like to direct you to the wonderful Missouri Valley uh, Special Collections over at the Kansas City public library and they have a lot of great articles a lot of them are online and so this particular one is at kchistory.org which is one of their productions there just before swope's death investigators had had determined that dr hyde had purchased cyanide pills and hyde was in line for inheriting Swope's fortune because he was his son-in-law. So there was this family connection, potential inheritance, and witnesses from the family testified at a trial, and there was a big national trial about this, that Hyde had given Swope a pill before his sudden death. So was it one of the cyanide capsules? That's what the investigators were were thinking it could be. Um, Hyde had also purchased some typhoid samples, which uh, was kind of an odd thing. But he was a doctor, so maybe he was using it for investigating typhoid. But there was also an outbreak of typhoid at the Swope Mansion shortly after after he purchased those samples. So uh, there is a, a theory that he had poisoned Colonel Swope and that he had infected the family. And it's all a very interesting and fascinating case. Did not hold up in court, though. No, did not hold up in court. Right. And so uh, it it was deemed it was circumstantial evidence. Yeah. However, 
another article I read said the people of Kansas City <laughs> were blown away, and they're like, "What? This yeah. doesn't seem right." Yeah. Um, and reading it, I don't know what's exactly true. Yeah. We'll just stay neutral on this one. I think Charles has opinions on what happens. <laughs> Possible. Yeah. yeah, but uh, so it, it ruined Hyde's career. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. that's all fascinating stuff. Right. So then um, flashing forward a little bit further into the 1900s, still in the early parts, uh, we get to the Pendergast brothers. Yeah. Enter the Pendergast brothers. Yeah. So you start out with the older brother, James, who built this political machine out of the revenue from saloons, illegal gambling, and prostitution. But anyway, Pendergast, um, he was known for, for one thing, for he was very philanthropic. Uh, so he would feed people. He made sure that people had clothes. Mm-hmm. He made sure that people had coal to heat their homes. And But he also expected your loyalty. And he organized himself. He made, formed an alliance with the Italian community because uh, everybody did not share the same vision as Kansas City that he did. Uh, that of a wide open, very permissive atmosphere where vice flowed freely. People like William Rockhill Nelson, the editor of The Star, he was a pro- proponent of the City Beautiful movement where they would use sparks and boulevards to create uh, the city's infrastructure, right. which okay. would uh, actually be the infrastructure for racism. Uh, and uh, you also have the uh, Swope Park was donated to the city during that time because we were dealing with uh, urbanization. People were coming in from the farms and coming into more of an uh, a, uh, industrialized economy. So in order to deal with urbanization, you had the City Beautiful movement, which was a national movement. And William Rockhill Nelson was a, a strong proponent of it. He hired George Kessler to design our parks and boulevards. So you have, he designed, Kessler designed Swope Park, uh, Cliffs Drive, Penn Valley Park, Benton Boulevard, Independence Avenue, Linwood Boulevard, Paseo, all that was designed during that time period. And so Pendergast, um, they were known for corrupting elections um, because they had to compete with the Kansas City Star newspaper for one. So they would hire poor people to vote four or five times on election day. They would register the names of dead people with their addresses of vacant homes. And, and so he, as a result, he controlled Jackson County politics. Um, and the way it was explained to me is that a lot of the money would flow into James saloons and places like that from workers that didn't trust banks. Mm-hmm. Right. And and James, he was running this political machine. He died of natural causes in 1911. Right. And his younger brother, Tom, inherited his machine. At the time, Tom was a local city councilman, but then he stepped down from that right. after his brother's death but still was hugely politically influential in the Kansas City area. Right. And so then under Tom Pendergast, the Pendergast machine was really about controlling votes and funds uh, by awarding different jobs and government contracts. Mm -hmm. The Pendergast political machine, they funded a news. They they began to uh, actively uh, go after the black vote. And so what they did was they funded a newspaper called the American Newspaper to recruit blacks into the Democratic Party. 
and it was published by Felix H. Payne and William J. Tompkins. So Felix Payne, uh, during, so gambling was illegal, but he had a spinning policy wheel right outside of his club, okay? He owned clubs on 12th Street, so he owned the Eastside Club, the Subway Club, and the Sunset Club, okay? And he owned property as well. And he's, like I said, he started off as a barber. He was, uh, Tom, Tom Pendergast was Irish Catholic, and his constituents were working class Catholics, first and second generation immigrants of Italian, Irish, Mexican, and African descent. So he had kind of a broad coalition of, of people um, that all kind of fell under this Jackson County Democratic Party. What time period are we talking about here? So we're talking about uh, the turn of the century. We're talking about in the 1920s now okay. with Felix Payne and the numbers racket and okay. the blacks switching their loyalty to the Democratic Party. Right. And, yeah. And, and so and, uh, and yeah. so they funded a newspaper uh, called the American Newspaper, and they were instrumental in getting Roosevelt elected to the presidency. So Roosevelt, Pendergast actually gave his support to Roosevelt instead of James A. Reed. James A. Reed was a rival uh, nominee through the Demo- for the Democratic Party to uh, Roosevelt. Yeah, but James A. Reed actually, he was serving on the U.S. Senate and Banking Committee. He was backed by the Pendergast political machine as well, and so was Truman. Truman was as well. When Truman was elected to the U.S. Senate in, ni- in 1936, four people were murdered on election day. Mm. The first person murdered was uh, William Finley. He was a black man. He was murdered on 24th in Michigan. They were able to swing the vote for Roosevelt, and uh, Roosevelt then appointed William J. Tompkins, Felix Payne's business partner, as recorder of deeds for the District of Columbia. Uh And he held that position in the 1930s and the 1940s. Felix Payne, he owned a baseball team called the Kansas City, Kansas Giants. So at this point, I think we have to talk about the DiGiovanni brothers. Right, yeah. who were they, Dave? Well, um, Di Giovanni for 500. Um, who is Joseph and who is Pete? Right. So Joseph and Pete, they were... And more specifically, they're the Black Hand. Right. Yep. Uh, so that was what they were known as. The uh, They were both from Sicily. Right. They had fled Sicily to Kansas City in 1912. And... Once they arrived in Kansas City, they started to set up different criminal operations as part of the Italian-American organized crime family um, known as the the Mafia or the Black Hand was the, the local one here. Right. And so, yeah, the Black Hand, and my understanding is when it was time to pay dues, there was an, an actual piece of paper with a Black Hand on it telling you what your instructions were. Yeah. During that era, following the their arrival into the 1920s, they began to organize various criminal rackets, uh, running alcohol, especially right. because that was also the era of the 18th Amendment, which was prohibition. Right. Before we jump in and go, go any yep. further, I want to make sure that we uh, make a, a note that a lot of our information came from the book Open City, uh, the true story of, of the KC crime family, 1900s to 1950 by William uh, Usley, or Usley, I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But he was 
an F- FBI agent on the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, so great book. He also uh, was a featured speaker for Kansas City Public Library. You can find that video link in our show notes or just do a search. Right. So so all of that combined in uh, into that prohibition, the illegal alcohol, uh, and the, the organized crime and the Jackson County Democrats, the, the, all of that was all going on around that same time frame. Right. And Pendergast mm-hmm. didn't necessarily want to deal with Little Italy and was perfectly happy letting the Di Giovannis uh, run things. Yep. And so... Um, yeah. And, and with him appointing all of the the political uh, all the political appointments that there were no alcohol re- alcohol related arrests that were made on their on their operations so right um, the black hand benefited directly from that kind of protection and they in turn supported the the Pendergast machine all right so it's kind of a perfect storm then right it's uh, going into the 1920s. Kansas City is thriving with the stockyards, the railroad. Um, businesses are making connections with Chicago and uh, surrounding area. Um, a lot of people are coming here for work. There's a thriving bar, illegal bar scene, mm-hmm. uh, illegal gambling, prostitution, all of that. And a political machine that is in full swing that is generating votes to get particular candidates elected and contracts awarded to folks. And so that all sets up for prohibition when it all came to an end. Right. And (laughs) reformers said, clean up Kansas City. And Kansas City said, yes, let's do that. No more. We're going to be on the straight and narrow from here on out. That is, that is not, not what happened. What happened though. <laughs> no, what no, and and I have a quote here from one of the books you'll find in our show notes. Uh, the book is Prohibition in Kansas City, Missouri: Highballs, Spooners, and Crooked Dice by John Simonson. Great title. Yep, and. The quote here is, like most cities during Prohibition, Kansas City had illegal alcohol, bootleggers, speakeasies, cops on the take, corrupt politicians, and moralizing reformers. But by the time the 18th Amendment was repealed, Kansas City had been singled out by one observer as one of the wettest cities as well as the wickedest. So jazz kind of developed, let's say jazz was born in New Orleans, grew up here in Kansas City because we didn't enforce prohibition. And jazz is affiliated with a criminal element because it was played mostly in clubs that served illegal liquor. Okay, so not only uh, was prohibition not enforced for people that wanted to gamble or engage in prostitution or drink, but there were no arrests. There were no (laughs) arrests during... uh, uh, prohibition in Kansas City, so that's mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the control that that shows of of how deeply embedded all of these different individuals were. Um, I know we touched on a few of the names there, right? But like the Tom Pendergast, uh, John Lazio, we didn't really even mention, but. 
crime boss uh, in Kansas City that was that was highly involved in all of the yeah. So he came after the Di Giovanni brothers mm-hmm. and so took over kind of the little little Italy area. Mm-hmm. But after Tom Pendergast mm-hmm. got arrested for. We believe it was an illegal donation. Right. It, it, so it was tax evasion was the charge okay. that finally took him down in 1939. But, yeah, I think it was around a donation that he didn't report. Right. Okay. And so then uh, Charles Bonaggio took over for Pendergast after that. And, um, yeah, so many names after that. So 12th Street was the red light district. And that's where they kept all the vice and everything was kind of quarantined on 12th Street. And so and 12th, all of 12th Street was red. Even if you look up here where the Marriott is, you can't see because of the trees. But where, where the Marriott is today, uh-huh. uh, from why not to Central, before the Marriott was there, there was all strip joints that line huh. from why not to Central, owned by the Camasanos. So 12th Street for decades had been a very seedy area, okay? And so until, this is at the very end, up until the uh, 1970s. Up until the 1970s? Up, up, oh, my god! Up until the Bornealis Plaza oh my gosh. moved in. Because yeah. you have the strip joints uh, that that's in the 70s. So well-established from the turn of the century, as a, up as until a, 1970s. It's a seedy area, so they had a song called 12th Street Rag. Yeah which was published in 1917 by Uday Bowman mm-hmm. that highlighted the red light district. So when there are no arrests made during prohibition, you know, that gets the FBI's attention. And the FBI was here. Let's let's make sure that yeah. we let folks know. And my understanding is the FBI just didn't have the, the power and they didn't have the investigative tools yet. And it was just a foreign concept to them of a political machine, mm-hmm. of organized crime. They'd never encountered anything like it before, so they didn't know how to go about prosecuting it. And uh, the folks that were engaged in it were so secretive. And so ultimately, I believe the story is that so many investigative techniques of the FBI that are even used today Mm-hmm. were discovered through this, uh, you know, period of, of Kansas City true crime. Right. So if you look at the FBI archives, 1908, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt created the FBI. 1917, you might recognize J. Edgar Hoover. That's when he took over the FBI. And even up through the 20s and into the 30s, like we were talking about, they, right. that that was all still a growth time for them. They were still a small organization. Right. And, and you know, and Kansas City was, uh, while they had a field office here, mm-hmm. that wasn't the only thing they were keeping their eye on. It was right. the entire region or territory. And so um, if you're a fan of history and pop culture, you, you'll know that um, – Bonnie and Clyde were a big problem around the Midwest, particularly in Missouri. And so uh, the FBI KC division, uh, they were responsible for pursuing Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow in the 1930s, which Mm -hmm. I guess that took up a lot of time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot of bullets to catalog. 
A lot of investigation there, yeah. And like like you mentioned earlier, Dave, the 1933, the Kansas City Massacre. Right. The FBI was involved in that investigation as well. So yeah. um, a lot of a lot of this, you can find FBI.gov on their history. They have the history of the Kansas City field office, and there's a yeah. lot of fascinating cases and information on there. That was a rabbit hole I went down. I found it very enjoyable. Um, yeah, so that takes us to uh, the, the the 1940s. And, you know, we were mentioning that the FBI made a lot of advances. And one of the advances they made um, based on their work in Kansas City is let's create a, a top 10 wanted most fugitives mm-hmm. list with photos and, you know, post them places. And maybe people will actually recognize some of these criminals. And it led to arrests. Right. Yeah. One one of the earliest ones, the the like a year after they had launched that, uh, was Ollie Embry, who was working. He was a bank robber, but he was working and hiding out as a filling station attendant. So agents arrested him by going up there, asking him to look at their radiator and fix their car. And then they kind of like came up around him while he was distracted with the radiator and were like, oh, you're under arrest. <laughs> All right, so by the 1960s, um, the FBI just ramps up their presence. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, enough is enough. The lawlessness has to stop. So they send 73 FBI agents to the field office in Kansas City with 43 supporting personnel. And so... A huge expansion of... of of resources and investigation. Right. And ultimately, it leads to the downfall of the figurehead of the Kansas City Mafia. Mm-hmm. And it happened in um, a case the FBI called Straw Man. In 1977, Savella, who was then in charge of, of the Kansas City Mafia. And should we back up for a moment? I just want to make sure that we go back and identify, fill in the gaps here. So we had mentioned that it was Lazia and then Benaggio. Um, and after that, it was uh, Carollo, but he got arrested for tax fraud. Um, then uh, Benaggio took over and participated in uh, our narcotics ring. Um might have been murdered by the New York Mafia, the Chicago Mafia, the St. Louis Mafia, his own crime family. Nobody really knows. Then uh, Anthony Gizzo ran gambling operations, and his driver was Nicholas Savella. Mm-hmm. And so kind of like in the crime movies, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, the little kid who, right. you know, the errand boy becomes the uh, chauffeur, then, you know, becomes the mafia boss. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. So in 53, Gizzo dies, Nick Savella, and the Savella Organized Crime Organization begins, and they get surveilled by the FBI mm-hmm. for the rest of their life. So that brings us to... Probably my favorite story, the favorite story of Casey, and, and I'm not going to tell it well, but we could tell you to go 
look at the uh, Missouri Valley collection yeah. where they have a page on uh, all of this and, uh, and you know, Kansas City Mafia. And so if you look at the movie The Godfather, part one. OK, so they go to, to war. Vito Corleone goes to war with the rest of the mafia families right. in that area and maybe nationwide because his son gets killed. Right. Santino, he got killed. And they couldn't come about an agreement uh, over the fact that your prohibition was ending and there was more money in narcotics. Right. Vito Corleone did not want to go into narcotics. Right. But the rest of the mafia wanted to, and they wanted the protection that Vito Corleone had with the politicians and the police. Mm -hmm. They wanted his the protection that he had mm -hmm. so that they could get off into narcotics with his protection. And, and that's fiction, but it's so often a lot of it's based on true reality. Yeah. And when the Godfather premiered, the Italian community here, they, they tried to get it banned. <laughs> because I tell you what. It's unflattering it, for one, but yeah. well when it came when it came about, when his son got killed, Vito Corleone, he wanted to call a truce. He called a truce. Yeah. Okay. Called a meeting for a truce to be put in place. Right. As he's going around the table, he mentions, he introduces everybody, and he says where they're from. He says, my friend such and such, our friend such and such from Queens, from Brooklyn, from mm -hmm. Staten Island, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and our friends out west, uh -huh. California and Kansas City. Yeah. Not Missouri, uh -huh. Kansas City. It's Kansas City. And they said, this is what we'll do. This is how they came across it. We understand narcotics is bad, but what we will do, we will quarantine, we keep it in the black community. And that's how they came, uh, came about the truce. And that's what they and that's did. that's based in reality. And that's what is based in reality. That's what they did here in Kansas City. Mm. With all the surveillance, um, the Savella never got caught until Super Bowl Four, And so... Everybody in the world assumed that the NFL team, the Vikings, were going to beat the Kansas City Chiefs from the AFL. Why? Because, you know, um, the Chiefs got crushed by the uh, uh, Green Bay Packers in Super Bowl One. Um, Super Bowl Three, I believe, was the first time the AFL won, but just barely. It was kind of a fluke. It was kind of lucky by the Jets. Mm -hmm. um, so enter the Chiefs. They're heavy underdogs. Nobody's betting on the Chiefs except for Kansas Cityans. And Kansas Cityans put a ton of money down. <laughs> Well, the thing about gambling is you've got to have money on the other side. Ideally, you have the spread set that invites enough people to put money on both sides, both teams, and whoever's losing is paying those winners. Well, in this case, everybody picked Kansas City and everybody was going to win. Savella starts calling Las Vegas what are we going to do? <laughs> we don't have this kind of money. And the FBI said, you know what? We got a solution to your problem. You don't have to worry about the money because you can't spend your money in jail. 
Yeah. Yeah. The, although, so they, they had been wiretapping, like you said, they, they were, they were all over this whole, whole thing. Um, Operation Strawman. And there's a, a, a good resource that we, uh, that we'll share in the show notes as well. The black hand straw man. Yeah. Yeah. And I have not gotten a chance to see that documentary yet. There's also a book, mm-hmm. um, but um, yeah, I, I've got it on, I got it on hold. So listeners, you have to wait until I get it first, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that, that was it. That was it for uh, uh, Nicholas uh, Savella and, uh, I, I I believe he died in prison. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Cancer. And uh, yeah. Uh, Carl Savella briefly took over, and then um, William Camisano uh, came after and became the Savella uh, family leader, and he attempted to convert the River Key into a red light district with brothels and drugs and all of that in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by by that time, the FBI wasn't having it. No. <laughs> so uh, back to the straw man case, because just a few things to, to wrap up there. Um, the wire traps contributed to significant evidence on, on a large scale conspiracy by mob families, not only in Kansas City, but also three other major cities. And the investigation uncovered several murder plots. So 11 individuals, including members of the Savella family, were indicted in 1981. So, um, uh, this mob family was also uh, investigated for Racknet, and uh, that is a stolen property ring uh, case. And at its conclusion, 22 criminals were identified and 250000 in stolen property, which was a big deal in 1981. Yeah, yeah. That was a big investigation there and there are so many more and we're already probably past our time for this normal for our normal length of episode but hopefully you've all enjoyed it and if you're if you're wanting to learn more we have a couple extras that you can do as like your own little independent research project so bonus 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 investigation so in the 1980s uh fuf bank and insurance scam yeah. Yeah. So uh, Kansas had the highest rate of bank failures of any state in 1980. Why? Well, because <laughs> they're making money off of it. <laughs> yep. And then into the 1990s, you get Sokik and Hammerjack, which were criminal enterprises stealing vehicles, retagging the VINs, and selling them in other states. Chop shops and all kinds yeah. of dismantling of vehicles. Yeah, so with with that, I think we're going to call it good and we'll be back with our final thoughts in just a few. Don't go anywhere. There's more Joko Library uncovered to come. So I, I find it really interesting that uh, the television series Fargo, season four in particular, if you watch the series, then you know every episode begins with these words on screen. This is a true story. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed out of respect for the dead. The rest has been told exactly as it occurred. But not true. 
<laughs> yeah, it turns out that's not true at all. Through a little research, I found out that the characters and the events in the fourth story of, uh, you know, Fargo, uh, they're totally f- fictitious. Uh, but they are informed by this fascinating period of American history, this Casey true crime. You know, so Fargo season four is set in Kansas City, Missouri from November 50th uh, to early 1951. And the season follows two crime syndicates as they vie uh, for control of uh, the underground. And I think it is just fascinating that you know, a a show as big as that gets influenced by kind of this Kansas City Mafia scene. And it's Mm -hmm. not the first time that that show has mentioned the Kansas City Mafia. And I've been fascinated how it pops up in all kinds of television shows, all kinds of books, all kinds of movies. And um, I don't know, it's always made me wonder, well, what, what exactly is true? And hopefully today we shed light on both what's true, but also just how much we can't possibly cover in a single podcast. For sure. Do you think the library would let us just do, uh, you know, there's Johnson County Library presents Kansas City True Crime. True Crime. I think it'd be popular. Okay. Well, so as we said, there's just way too much to put into this episode. So we have created a bonus episode and that's coming up next. That's true. And for that, we invited a couple guests to record with us. Uh, We have Amanda Wallmeyer, which she is our uh, local history librarian for Mm -hmm. Johnson County Library. Um, She's going to be in to share with us some local history resources for people that are interested in Kansas City true crime. Sure. And we also invited Jim Cosgrove, who is uh, an author, a local author, um, and he wrote a book that deals with a crime um, for a local Kansas City family, uh, a murder. The McGonagall family, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so another Kansas City name that some of you might be familiar with. So tune back in next time to hear our conversation with Jim and Amanda. Co-Library Uncovered. Well, if you enjoyed today's topics, you might just be interested in these recommendations from our collection. First, a Charles Choice. And I actually don't read a lot of true crime. Um, I... It's not usually my go-to, but you don't I read did. that to the kids at uh, no, <laughs> bedtime. No, but I do have a recommendation actually from my mom. Okay, um, she read this one a, a little while ago, and it was pretty good. Uh, Deaths on Pleasant Street by Giles Fowler. It's a 2009 book, and it covers the 1909 murder case surrounding the Swope family, and apparently um, Colonel Swope. His family had a, a series of of three deaths that were all um, their their son in law, Doctor Bennett Clark Hyde, was accused of uh, homicide in the the three 
cases. So it's oh wow, yeah. So it's all a intrigue and prominent names in Kansas City history, right? Wow. And it, it they used all the court transcripts from cases because this was a big national story at the time as well. And wow. Um, they retell it and get into the science and break down like, oh, what what really might have happened? So that sounds like a, a great read. Yeah. Um, next is a Dave's double feature, and I am suggesting The Godfather. And we have in our collection the uh, Godfather DVD collection. So with that, you get all three Godfather movies on four DVDs with a fifth disc that's loaded with bonus features. And if you've never seen the Godfather series, you might ask yourself why. <laughs> I mean, it's directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, James Caan, Andy Garcia, Abe Vigoda and countless other heavy hitter actors. Um, the first two movies won the Academy Award for Best Picture, and each of the movies received countless other Oscar awards. For my second one, I'm going to send you to Canopy, and that is our streaming service. Again, you can find that at jocolibrary.org slash elibrary, and just look for streaming video. And... Uh, Part of Canopy's The Great Courses, they have this uh, series on screenwriting. And so look for Existential Meaning, Fargo. And, you know, I already mentioned that yeah. I, I'm a big fan of, of the whole Fargo franchise. Well, this is episode 18 of this Great Course series. And um, they talk about screenwriting. And so uh, this particular one... They say that some films defy easy explanation. Fargo is an eccentric story that uses its oddities to its advantage, like delaying the appearance of the main character for almost a third of the film. <laughs> so explore existentialism and see what can happen when writers stop thinking about fixed structure and focus on the desired result. And a reminder that for a full book report recommendation uh, list can be found on our webpage, jocolibrary.org slash uncovered. Joko Library Uncovered is a production of Johnson County Library and is recorded at the Central Resource Library in Overland Park, Kansas. We would love to read your thoughtful emails at uncovered at jocolibrary.org. Join our online conversation at facebook.com slash jocolibrary. Look for us on Twitter at jocolibrary. Our website is jocolibrary.org. Subscribe to Joko Library Uncovered through your favorite podcatcher or go to jocolibrary.podbean.com. Thanks for listening and come back in two weeks for more Joko Library Uncovered. Come to the Absolutely. library. Absolutely.